For those um, who are new to us or maybe have been away for a time, we have been going through a series over the course of the last uh, couple of months that has been looking at who we are as a fellowship, who we are as Fitzroy. Um, It comes out of a discovery course that Tear Fund run, which uh, before we look out to the community around about us to see how we can best be the kingdom and God's will in the community around us, we look in and see who we are. Maybe be encouraged from who we are. Maybe ask a few questions about who we are so that we get ourselves strong. Not that we're waiting until we have done that before we move into the neighborhood as the baby and toddler group has shown. We're doing things um, as we go, still trying to make sense of it, I guess, and think it through. I suppose this morning in the midst of that, maybe something that some of you have approached me about over the 11 months that I've been here, um, you will have noticed a little bit more perhaps in the way of creativity. Um, And I'm not sure that I noticed that as much, but some people have said that to me. And before I came, some said to me, run with your strength in the arts because we need that at Fitzroy. And I'm not sure that you needed me to do that. I think last Saturday night with the abundance of what went on on the stage here was uh, not as a result of me coming to Fitzroy. Perhaps Friday night with Martin Joseph was, and can I thank you for supporting that event, and I know that many of you enjoyed it and just weren't here to make up the numbers. But I suppose maybe my coming has, um, because of maybe what people think or tell you about somebody who's written a book in you too, has maybe focused us on, oh, that's creative or artistic or whatever else. So this morning I want to try and maybe answer some of the ways that we're going to be creative, and we, I think, have been creative without really noticing it. And I want to start by doing something I used to do in chaplaincy where um, they were all 18, you know. I had two things that students needed. I needed to make the sinner saints, but the truth is, the saints could have been doing with being a little bit more sinful. I don't mean it in the wrongest sense of the word, but you know, you come to University 18 and everything's pretty crystal clear. And uh, you know so much more at 18, at least I did, than I do at 49. And so there was a few times when you were trying to just, you know, of course you would know I would enjoy throwing out a few issues to make them think. And when I did that for a couple of years, there was uh, one guy who um, was in the hall and we used to have a joke that Steve's dangling himself over the pit of heresy. And I would do that occasionally, and um, I would do that occasionally, and then hopefully pull myself back from the fiery furnaces of heresy as it went on. So let me say something to a more adult, more intelligent, more rational, more mature, much more sinful. No, um, to a group of people that might not be as disturbed by it, but it's an interesting phrase, I think. If I said that without art, there can be no grace without art there can be no grace how would we respond to such a phrase or is it a crazy stockman notion or could we for a moment or two attempt to unpack that let me unpack it immediately by doing the thing that when you tangle yourself over the pit of heresy especially from Balamina Presbytery 
um, that you should do the thing that maybe allows us to be a little bit more comfortable by taking us back into the scriptures. Let me look just at two stories. Stories. Are we getting that already? Two stories of Jesus. He was an artist. Profoundly an artist. He made things out of wood. And when it came to his ministry, he was no less of an artist. He told stories. Let's look at two of those stories very quickly. The story of the prodigal son. Here he is in a world of Pharisee, legalist religion. They don't like him because he's hanging out with the guys who are the prostitutes and the publicans and the sinners. And he's trying to show them who God responds to or how God responds. And he tells them this story about the lost son. Now we have the lost coin in there and we have the lost sheep in there. But he tells three stories in this scenario. And it seems to me that the prodigal son is perhaps his longest novelette. And he talks about this guy who, from the farms around North Antrim, goes to his dad and takes his bit of the inheritance and goes off and just lives the most hedonistic, wasteful life you could imagine. And then he's coming home. And the Pharisees are going, whoa, this guy needs some lightning bolts. And when he comes home and he gets near his father, there has to be an amazing switch in the imagination of his entire listeners. Because the condemnation and the judgment that is deserving of this prodigal son never appears. And the father is running down the laneway to take hold of the lost son and to throw a party for him and welcome him back into the heart of the home. Jesus is trying to give them a new vision and imagining of the father heart of God and also how God deals with those who are the strays and the black sheep and the wanderers and the sinners. And that story is thrown in as an artistic, detonated theology bomb to artistically recreate the idea of grace. They needed to reimagine who God was before they could come to understand the grace of God. Jesus is saying, I think, I need to capture this in a story and allow them to reimagine before they're ever going to get the grace that I have come to bring. Or the story of the Good Samaritan. 
There's all the religious people. We looked at this in Mark, so I won't go into it in any depth. It's up there on the webpage if you should dare. Um, but uh, this story of this good Samaritan where the religious people don't want to touch anything unclean, we don't want to get involved in that because we're going to sacrifice. And where Jesus comes and artistically brings grace into the midst of religiosity. And he told this story about the proper people doing the right thing, but getting it wrong. And how the enemy across the border that we really don't want to know anything about becomes the one who does the right thing in offering grace unlimited to his enemy. Grace comes as an interruption. The world is going on its way, in its direction, and suddenly an alternative way of seeing everything breaks in. It interrupts. It says as we think that we're going to do our best. I was listening this morning to John Elsley, who was the bass player in Dire Straits, at least the last time I saw them live, and uh, he was talking about his spirituality, and it was very much about, well, I'm trying to be good, and I'm trying to do this, and I'm trying to do that. And that's the way the world kind of sees it. It's a karmic kind of way to, if we do what we can, then we'll get what we might have. No, grace interrupts that and says, no, 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 no. Here's the bizarre thing. If you're the prodigal in a faraway place, and you've done everything you can to break the relationship with the Father. You don't have to do anything because he's going to welcome you as you are in your messed up state. We go back to the start of the series. We are ragamuffins. But we're going to need somebody to artistically explain that new way to us because it's hard to imagine. And in fact, as I speak, even in Fitzroy, People will come to me and say, you know, I know that's true, but I find it very hard to grasp in my own life. That's because the conditioning around us is so you get what you put in that we cannot imagine easily a world where it could be free. So it takes an artistic reimagining new vision to rethink the whole way that we live our lives to begin to comprehend that we could be loved as we are and that we should love our enemies. And it makes me wonder in a Protestant culture that I've grown up in. Have we lost something of the arts? I'm sure I've told you the story, but it's always worth telling again and again about the Catholics and Protestant kids going to each other's churches and one of those reconciliation type things. Protestant kids from the Shanko go over to the Catholic church, discover amazingly that when they left, they weren't demon-possessed. 
Catholic kids go to the Protestant church, 15-year-old really bored, looking at his feet as 15-year-olds are supposed to do for 365 days. And then after five minutes in this Protestant church, he looks up and he goes, you've been robbed. (laughs) Who took all the stuff? And from the mouths of an adolescent, he's dead right. We have been robbed. When you walk into the house of God, should you not first and foremost feel the creational, artistic power of God? Now, we don't do badly here. I have to say. And if you get Nigel Henderson started about some of the art on the outside of the building, you can cancel your lunch. But there are many places that pride themselves in Protestantism of being just white barns. He's left to get ready for you when you, uh, <laughs> when you come to the door afterwards. And I wonder if we've been robbed. The arts, we don't see it as seriously. So here's a challenge for you. The next arts program from Northern Ireland that is on your television, look at the names going up on the screen afterwards and see all those Protestant names. Not many. I used to think the name thing was a joke until I went to graduation. Sit on the stage of a graduation at Queen's. Henry William Charles Stewart. Seamus Daclan Eamon O'Malley. <laughs> if there was one that we weren't sure about, I would nudge Gary and say, oh, there's one that confuses a little bit. There weren't many. But you look at the arts programs and just see how many are coming from the Protestant. And therefore, where I'm getting to here is this. You really need to reimagine a new Northern Ireland. A new Northern Ireland where children would go to the same school. Let's not go to that imagining. Where we might not know the names, or the streets might have no names, or we can mingle. You know, we were talking, some of my students when I was in chaplaincy, when the group came over from America, they would, student group, they would love to meet with other students. So we would try and get them together. And there was this wonderful night where I thought we were having fine real progress, where some of my students were saying, Oh, you know, it's different now. When, when I go out now, when I go out with my school friends, you know, Catholics and Protestants go out together, and we don't mind when we go out together whether we're Catholics or Protestants, and, and there's Catholics and Protestants in my football team, and, and there's Catholics and Protestants that are in the same band that I'm in, and there's Catholics and Protestants that, you know, go... And I stopped and said, Americans, how many of you know who the Catholics and Protestants are in your class? And suddenly we became aware of a dysfunction in our community that's very, very tangible and real. We thought we were doing well that night because Catholics and Protestants were doing things together. But the very fact that we'd analyzed when we went into the classrooms who was who was telling us that we need to reimagine a Northern Ireland where things will be radically kingdom-like different. And so can I ask, 
Are the Catholic community dealing better with peacetime than we are because they are really far more creative in their culture than we are? Is that part of it? Because sometimes I think that maybe the Protestant politicians are the ones who are not just able to grasp how the new thing might be, whereas maybe our Catholic nationalist politicians are grasping a little bit quick. I'm only throwing it out. When you go to District 6 in South Africa, um, it's a gash in the middle of Cape Town where the white population were swept off and they bulldozed everything down. I was showing photographs of it to the 4S Club just the other Monday. When you go into their museum, we Northern Ireland Presbyterian chaplaincies went straight for the bookstall to find the book that would explain to us how this happened. Who was to blame? There weren't any. There were poetry books. There were novels. There were plays. There were photographic exhibition books. Because in South Africa, in the middle of their culture is this artistic, creative thing that uses that art and that creativity to transform the world that they're in. Because without art, there can be no imagining or revisioning or recreating. We need to have the exercise, the muscles of our mind, the muscles of our imaginations, so strong that when the need for change comes, we are able to dream dreams and see visions as the scriptures explain to us we would. And so, I haven't got to this yet. And so, how do we bring that into Fitzroy life? It happens every day, or it needs to. We have been having a kind of a revolving door in the months of one committee after another committee. Or we come down to the L-shaped room, one committee after another committee. What are we going to do with our buildings? We have no idea unless we imagine, unless we envision, unless we are creative and artistic. How are we going to break into this neighborhood with the kingdom so that this neighborhood will tell us in 20 years when we want to move don't move, we need you in our community. How are we going to make those relationships? How are we going to step out of what we called the bond? We're going to need in that group of discovery or the 10 who are at that moment trying to work out how we make those connections, we're going to have to be creative and imaginative. When the worship team meets, as we have been doing, to try and see how our worship is theologically, creatively, communally, we need to have some sense of creativity in the center of it to see where we have been doing it and how we're going to do it. We need to become a creative community where the muscles of our imagining allow us to do what the Bible tells us we will be, those who envision and dream dreams. And so when we throw together a reading that we do together, a hammer dulcimer piece and a song together, we are trying within the midst of it not only to bring glory to a God who is creative, but we're trying to just jolt by the arts 
how we do things, to keep us from falling into a status quo and keep the muscles of our creativity alive. When we bring Martin Joseph or we do the concert we did last Saturday night, we're trying to bring the arts back into the place in the scriptures that it has. I think it's chapter four of Genesis before we get a hammer dulcimer type instrument. Chapter four. One of the first things that happens or is recorded. Then, of course, for those of us who are good Presbyterians, Exodus 20 tells us to get rid of all those things. No graven images for us. No, no. But sadly, if we could read on, 11 chapters later, the very first person in the entire scriptures to be filled with the Spirit of God, at least recorded to be filled with the Spirit of God, is neither a theologian in Union College or a minister in Fitzroy. It is an artist whose role is to create art for the place of worship. The Bible is an artistic document. It's poetry, proverb, novel, parable, history. We do this because there are many advantages to doing it. But we also do it because we're following Jesus. We're part of a family of God and at the heart of God is his creativity. And hopefully it will benefit us all in every aspect of community life. I wasn't sure about the ending. And then I got an email. Well, a Facebook entry. Got it on my phone. How creative. I put up on my Facebook this morning, looking at the art and the importance of art in the Christian walk. And this came in. I hope I can get it because I'm not good with these things. Um, it might not even be in. I just am going to have to have another look somewhere else. Oh, don't tell me I've lost it right now because it's a brilliant way to end. Um, it would be, a, oh, here it is. David Compton, who's meeting in worship Methodist over in Dundonald this morning. David's always quick to give you a good conclusion to your sermon. And so he said to me, remember Steve Turner's poem, In Heaven. So David, you get the altar call. We will finish with Steve Turner via David Compton. In heaven there will be no policemen because there will be no crime. There will be no soldiers because there will be no war. There will be no doctors. I feel the insecurity rising immediately. There will be no doctors, no surgeons, no nurses. There will be no prison wardens, no security guards, no undertakers, no insurance salesmen, judges, watchmakers, firefighters, evangelists, gossip columnists, prostitutes or ambulance drivers. But there will be poets. Poets and musicians. This much we know. Let us pray. Lord, we pray so often 
And I love the verses so much. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But Lord, if that grace of heaven is going to interrupt life on earth, Lord, we're going to need to dream dreams and see visions of the alternative ways that that makes the world seem and look and be. And so we pray that as a community here in South Belfast, you would make fit the muscles of our imaginings. Help us to see the transforming power of art. And help us to know that in heaven, there will be many things we will not need, but the artist will still be at the heart of your world. Lead us, Lord, in whatever ways your artistic grace leads us. Amen. Amen.